are listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast, a podcast about ideas, events from the margins of terrorism, genocide, and the philosophy of violence. This podcast is recorded at the CJSW 90.9 FM studios at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, which is located on the traditional territories of the people of Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, which is comprised of the Siksika, the Pikane, the Gainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wellesley First Nation. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Your hosts are Gavin Cameron, Josh Goldstein, and Maureen Hebert. We're all on faculty here at the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary. Just a caution before we get started. This podcast is for a mature audience and deals with topics, commentary, and depictions of events that some listeners may find difficult or distressing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Oddities of Violence podcast. I'm the host for this episode, Josh Goldstein. I'm joined by my co-host, Gavin Cameron. Hi, Josh. And Maureen Hebert. Hi, everyone. Great to have you in the studio again, Gavin and Maureen. Really nice to be together. In this episode, we're probing the margins of the philosophy of violence. We'll be having a conversation about the meaning of violence for one of the ancient world's greatest historians of human conflict, the Athenian general Thucydides. Joining us today is one of our Oddities of Violence workshop contributors, Rachel Bruzzoni. Fittingly, we're talking to Rachel from the hometown of Thucydides himself, Athens, Greece. Hello, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great that you're here. Thanks for being with us, and really nice to talk with you again. Last time we spoke, it was before COVID struck. It was. Rachel is an assistant professor in the Culture, Civilization, and Ideas program at Bilkent University in Ankara, Turkey. She holds a PhD in classics from the University of Virginia in the USA, and has just finished up a semester at the Center for, Helen, uh, at the Center for Hellenic Studies in Washington, D.C., she specializes in Thucydides and his imposingly large book, The History of the Peloponnesian War. And she's finishing up her own book on Thucydides and warfare. In just a second, we'll turn to how Thucydides thinks about and might help us think about strange turns of violence within warfare. But first, Rachel, tell us a bit how you came to study classics. And then what was the path that took you from Charlottesville, Virginia, to Ankara, Turkey, with a home now in Athens? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I, I was sort of a success story of the liberal arts system in that I started out university thinking that I wanted to go to medical school, which would have been a terrible idea, um, but I was required to take language requirement courses and um, I discovered that I really liked literature I think I probably would have gone into whatever branch of literature I first fell into, and it happened to be Latin, um, and that got me into Greek. And I became interested in Thucydides because I was also a journalism major. So I had encountered this problem of how do you take the whole chaos of reality and turn it into narrative and accurately and respectfully um, how do you how do you do that? And so this problem of selectivity of how do you how do you turn reality into history was something that I had experienced from the other end. And so that made me really wonder how is Thucydides constructing his narrative? 
Wow, that's great. That's a, it, it is really amazing how certain topics which we never thought of, certain areas of study which we never thought of, then loom large and take hold of our take hold of our own lives through paths we couldn't uh, we couldn't predict. But it wasn't just that fortuitous thing. You ended up in uh, Ankara at Bill Kent. How how did that go? Yeah, yeah. Well, I as we know, um, the academic life simply takes you wherever it wants to take you. Um, and I I was in Germany for about five years. I was teaching in a liberal arts program there. Um, and I saw this job available in Turkey and I thought, hmm, do, do sane people apply to those jobs? I'm not sure. And then I did. Um, and I went there and I discovered that I loved it. So there I am to this day. Wow. That's a a similar story to our co-host Gavin Cameron, who finds himself from Scotland to Calgary. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, it also helps to marry a Canadian in that particular context. Ah, okay. Indeed. Life, uh, life and love. So, Rachel, your, your own contribution to our Oddities of Violence workshop gets us to think about the nature of violence and warfare in a new way through the Athenian general Thucydides and his great book, The History of the Peloponnesian War. To help orient our listeners who aren't familiar with ancient Greek history, can you give us a quick overview of the Peloponnesian War, who Thucydides was, and how he came to write the book that we're going to talk about? Sure. So the Peloponnesian War um, is a series of conflicts. So Thucydides is an Athenian general. He was a very rich man. He was probably from Thrace. His family was from the north. We don't know very much about him, but he claims to have been an adult at the beginning of the war. And so he was able to foresee already then how big and important it was going to be. He's living in kind of the shadow of the Persian Wars. So a generation earlier, there had been a conflict between the Greek cities and Persia. And the cities of Greece, it wasn't a country. They were all independent political units. Most of them had banded together and defeated the Persians with a much smaller army. And they really took this moment to heart. They really took pride in that. So when I was first reading this work in graduate school, the person the the professor who I read it with said you know this is like Thucydides situation is as if you're writing a history of the Vietnam War and Mm. you're looking back at World War II you're looking Mm. back at the war at this moment when you could take pride in who you were and now you're seeing everything fall apart so the Peloponnesian War in Thucydides' time is what we would call civil war among the Greek states and primarily among Athens, between Athens and Sparta and all of their allies. So the Greek states attack one another and it lasts for 30 years, at least as Thucydides conceives of the war. Most of his contemporaries would have seen two wars, not one. But he says it's one war and it's this devastating internally focused um, disaster that bleeds Greece dry. Wow. So the the war I've I've heard 
characterized as a war between two empires as much as it is a war between Sparta, the city-state, and Athens, the city-state. Is, is that right? Is it also uh, a war between, between empires? Yeah. Yeah, we wouldn't think of it as empires today in that they were much smaller political entities than we consider empire. But we have two hegemonic states, Athens and Sparta. Sparta has cities that follow it, that have historically followed it. What Athens has done is more, um, well, they both have behaved in very sinister ways. But what Athens did after the Persian Wars is it said, okay, we're going to have a coalition. We are going to protect one another against the Persians ever coming back. And all of the other states have a choice of either sending ships to, to serve that purpose or sending money to serve that purpose. And gradually more and more of them start sending money. And eventually Athens moves the treasury to Athens, um, right up the hill here. And uh, so, so these states that have turned to sending money to Athens, they've depleted their own military resources. They don't have the ships. And they're sending their, their financial resources to Athens. So over a period of years, Athens consolidates the control that an empire would have over these smaller states. And they become subjects rather than allies. That's great. That's, a, I think, a really excellent uh, background for our, for our listeners. And this takes us, I think, to your, own, to your own work on Thucydides. In your view, there seems to be something odd going on in Thucydides. And I think that this is a really fascinating idea, and, and I think it's especially fascinating as Gavin, Maureen, and I were, were talking about, because in political science, which is our own shared discipline, Thucydides is known to virtually every undergraduate uh, student, and we all think we know Thucydides, and we all think we know Thucydides because we've learned one particular line from, from him, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must from the, from the Melian Dialogue. And I've taught the Melian Dialogue, the place where this line occurs, and I'm sure that my co hosts have as, as well. Gavin, have you taught yeah. the Melian Dialogue? Yes, yes, I teach it in an introductory international relations course. Right, so it's a very junior student. And how about you, Maureen? Yes, I teach the Melian Dialogue uh, in my Law and Armed Conflict course, which is a senior seminar. Right, so from our most junior to our most senior students are being exposed to Thucydides and the Melian Dialogue is this center of gravity within Thucydides' uh, thought. So we all think that we already know Thucydides, but but Rachel, did Thucydides' contemporaries understand him to be making an argument about essentially might makes right within war? That's a great question. That is, um, I think, without a doubt, the most famous passage in Thucydides. Um, but I think it's, it. Uh, I would push back on treating it as his own opinion and it's impossible to know what his contemporaries would have thought i think i think the place to start with that idea is not thucydides but hesiod so hundreds of years earlier hesiod 
in his work some days talks about um he's got this this parable of the hawk and the dove and the hawk captures the dove and the dove is crying and the hawk says what are you crying about you're held by somebody who's stronger than you and i'll eat you for dinner if i want and i'll set you free if i want but i'm gonna do what i want with you there's no point in crying about it so this idea of might makes right is not thucydidean it's earlier than that it's much earlier than that um and i would say Anything in Thucydides that is not his own editorializing in his own words, we have to be careful about thinking that he's advocating for that. Um, so there are very few editorializing passages in Thucydides. He probably himself composed all of the speeches, but what that means is that he he wrote the Melian part of that dialogue every bit as much as he wrote <clears throat> the Athenian part. So he's not, you can't take him as kind of advocating for one side or the other. And the other thing about the Melian dialogue is there were many, many similar atrocities in this war. So why did he pick this one to highlight? Most, I think most, most classicists would say, because it shows this hubris, this destructive toxic arrogance of the Athenians right at the moment before their arrogance leads them to Sicily where they're going to get completely destroyed so I think a lot of people would say that juxtaposition is intentional that it's showing you the state has become so ethically debased that it is just about to flip over and destroy itself so um this question of whether in international relations might makes right is an important one. And it's one Thucydides wants us to think about, but I would not, um, I would not say it's one that he's, that we have any information that he's endorsing in any way. Ah, this is, this is great. So this gets, it seems to me, to your own project. How do we understand what Thucydides himself is trying to trying to tell us? And and if I have it right, your own emphasis is on these hinges of history, which you suggest are not violence and strength and domination, but something else for for Thucydides. So can you tell us first, like what a hinge of history is, and then what these new hinges of history for Thucydides might be. Sure, that's kind of another way of saying we need to look at the scale of narrative that Thucydides dedicates to specific incidents and think about why. So I would start with the um, ancient commentator Dionysius of Halicarnassus, he just tears his hair out over Thucydides. He has lots of complaints. He says Thucydides dedicates way too much text to some, some events and way too little to others, and he can't figure out what this man is up to. Um, so, you know, just for example, like we just said, uh, the Melian debate, that, that particular atrocity stands out in Thucydides, but it didn't stand out in the war. Mm -hmm. um, 
So what is Thucydides criteria of selection? How is he deciding that a particular event is important versus not important? I think this is this is a really it's a good question that Dionysius has, even though he doesn't address it in a very productive manner. Um, so what I'm arguing is that you can see in Thucydides's editorialization that he's very interested in the ethical, social, religious deterioration caused by war. And that a lot of the events that he chooses for to highlight show exactly the types of deterioration on those levels that he talks about. So for example, the siege at Plataea in book three, nothing happens. It's a stalemate, right? At there, nobody wins. Um, but it's he dedicates a huge amount of text to it. And I would argue that that's because Plataea had great moral and religious significance to Greeks at the time, because it was the site of a Persian war battle, uh, a, a very important one. And so seeing the way that this site gets treated in the Peloponnesian War spotlights the failures that he himself talks about, that he himself attributes to war. Well, that's a really interesting segue into the question that really piqued my interest. So when we read your abstract, one of the things you referred to is Thucydides saying that war is a brutal teacher. So I wonder if you could tell us and our listeners a bit more about exactly what terrible lessons he says war teaches. Sure, that's a great question. So as I mentioned earlier, Thucydides editorializes in his own voice a very small handful of times. And I would argue one of the most important times is in book three. He's talking about, this is after uh, he describes civil war, after he describes the effects of civil war. And he then editorializes not just about civil war, but about war in general. And he says that war is either a brutal teacher or a teacher of brutality, the Greek can go both ways. And I suspect he wanted it to go both ways. And he says it, he's not an optimist. He says these bad circumstances level human beings, emotional characters and their intellectual characters. He uses words for both. He says that it levels human beings characters with their circumstances. And so humans are kind of the victim here, right? War is teaching them to debase themselves, to level themselves to, the, to their circumstances. And he lists a lot of things. He talks about um, language changes. And so the words that we used to use for goodness or for openness don't get used for that anymore. Um, or bravery turns in, the definition changes into um, recklessness and cruelty. And people don't have any fear of the gods or people don't have any fear of oaths anymore. Um, family becomes less important than 
than party than political ties. So he lists all of these, right? It's a couple of pages of social, religious, and ethical changes that war causes and intellectual. That's interesting because that really maps on to the kind of classics literature that I read, which is all translated into English. I'm not a classicist myself, that maps the changes in the laws of war as the Peloponnesian War unfolds, that a lot of the kinds of constraining um, rules of war seem to fall away as the the war drags on and it becomes just the kind of, you know, in the Second World War, you know, a Fernichtungskrieg, a war of, of extermination. Um, do you think that these kinds of brutal lessons of war are things that um, are timeless in warfare itself, or it's something that's unique to, or not perhaps exclusively unique to the Peloponnesian War, but more a kind of hallmark of war in the ancient world at that time? Well, hmm. not being a political scientist, I'm not sure that I'm 100% um, competent to answer that question. I would say, out of my loyalty to Thucydides, that, um, that he's right, that he, he, I think it's important. He says war levels most people to their circumstances. So there are some who can still maintain their principles, but it's not many. Um, I, I think he's probably right. He, he obviously thinks he's right. And he, um, he says, this is the kind of thing I'm telling, he says to the audience, I'm telling you about this because this is the kind of thing that's going to keep happening. And um, and I think that probably is correct. Uh, it's kind of interesting when I when I taught in Germany, I, I always ask students, so do you think do you think permanent peace is possible? Can humanity ever nobody wants to go to war? Can we stop going to war? You know, we've we've tried that. Um, do you think it's possible? And when I taught in Germany, all the students said, yes, yes, of course. This was years ago. Um, when I taught in the US, the students said no. And when I taught, in, when I teach in, in Turkey, the students say no. So I think he's he's addressing this interesting question of why do we do this thing that we don't want to do, right? It's terrible. It's awful. and But we can't seem to get free of it. And I think he's right about that. Um, it's the same with the plague passage. So he talks about this terrible plague that hit Athens um right at the at the beginning of the war and he says he gives a very similar description of the plague he talks about its physical destruction but more so about the again social religious ethical destruction that the plague caused and he says you know i'm not i can't fix this there was no cure nobody could do anything so i'm telling you about it so that you can recognize it when it comes again so he was interesting to read during the pandemic. He thinks that war and plague, they're just going to keep happening. We can't stop them. Um, and he wants you to be able to recognize them. That's what he offers. Right, because basically you have this situation in which, as you say, humans are the victims, but they're also the makers, especially of yes. war itself, right? 
yes, it's this terrible thing that arises out of human nature, but none of us want, uh, you know, it's, it's like plague. It's, it comes from our physical nature, but we don't want it and we can't seem to control either of them. And Thucydides partially explains one of the causes of the Peloponnesian War as fear. Uh, and, yes. and, and one of the takeaways from Thucydides in the context of sort of international relations is that, is that he actually has something to say about the, the causes of war across time and place. I, I wonder whether you think, though, that we can use sources such as Thucydides or indeed other writers in that way? Can we sort of, can we detach writers such as Thucydides from their time and place and say that they have some sort of um, uh, sort of timeless, t t timeless wisdom about, say, the nature of war or the causes of war? Or should we use authors such as Thucydides only uh, to pose questions about our own time, but not necessarily provide answers? I think I would say the latter, um, or at least that we have to be very, very careful about um, trying to find answers in them. Thucydides himself is very clear that he's not providing answers. He's He is telling you there's a causal relationship between fear and political disaster. Yes, but he's not giving you a solution to that. Um, I think to a large extent what Thucydides is doing is uh, it's intellectual, but it's empathetic as well. It's saying here, this is part of the timeless human experience that we can't do anything about, that we that we share. And maybe he's trying to increase the number of people who are not leveled with their circumstances. Um, but I don't think... And of course, he is right that fear is politically toxic. Um, but I don't think, I think it's dangerous when we start looking for kind of answers or political stances in Thucydides. And we've we've seen that, especially with Thucydides, we've seen him used for very uh, destructive and terrible political ends over time. And so I think we have to be careful with that. Great. I want to pick up on a question that, that Gavin had asked about this, the timelessness of Thucydides. And one thing that strikes the modern reader is, and also is present in your interpretation, is this uh, large role played by piety, by the transformation in uh, religious practice with, within, the, within the war. And can you give us a bit of a sense why why transformations and piety would be so important to the to the Greeks? Why Thucydides marks that out as a significant um, a significant moment? Mm -hmm. Sure. So piety in Thucydides is almost always, or the failure of piety, piety in his editorializing passages, he ties it to the social structure of society. So he says in both the plague passage and in his editorializing about war, he says people stopped worrying about religious stuff. 
and they stopped worrying about oaths. They stopped being afraid of the gods. So he treats it as social glue. Now, we don't know about Thucydides' own personal religious beliefs, um, but in his editorializing, he talks about the failure of other people's religious beliefs as part of the way that society falls apart. And is the, and what are the, I'll start, start the question again. And does Thucydides see in the nature of the warfare, the nature of conquest, the nature of siege and so on, does, does he pick out examples of this great failures of, of piety, the transformation of, of religious commitments? Are there things that stand out as unique in the Peloponnesian War, say that we're not seeing in the Persian invasions, or we're not seeing in the usual inter-city or interstate conflict that that everyone of his time would have been familiar with? Mm-hmm. So um, just for a couple of examples, he talks about he, he talks a lot about the Civil War at a place called Corsaira. Um, he really starts out his narrative with Corsaira. And this is one of the things that gets Dionysus of Halicarnassus all up in arms because he's like, this is a little island way off in the north. What, why are we paying so much attention to this place? Um, so he's really interested in this particular location. And he shows you the various phases of the Civil War at different chronological points and at the end he talks about people not only killing family members um people committing sacrilege people who have been walled into temples hanging themselves and stabbing themselves with arrows and other people shooting down into sacred spaces to kill people inside sacred spaces um he so he gives you this sense of escalating violence against the combined social and religious structure of society. In the Plataea episodes, you have these Plataeans who are really associated with their city's kind of sacred past. And they're begging, they're casting themselves as suppliants, which is a religious posture in ancient Greece. So if you're a suppliant, if you're on your knees and you're begging somebody for your life, it's wrong to kill that person um, religiously. And so these, these people who are suppliants at the end, their former allies, the Spartans, take them out individually, one by one, ask them, have you been useful to Sparta in this war? And of course, they have to say no, because they're Athenian allies. And then Sparta, the Spartans execute them one by one, which, you know, if th think about an ancient context and how just physically awful and bloody and brutal that is, um, that killing people with a knife is not nice. And so he shows you, he doesn't, he doesn't um, expound at length about kind of the emotions or the goriness or the, the awfulness of any particular event but he shows you the terribleness of it anyway and how it's sacrilegious. So you've said a couple of times, Rachel, that Thucydides' contemporaries 
how, take issue with his editorial choices. So he's emphasizing particular uh, parts of the Peloponnesian War uh, in a way that perhaps his contemporaries wouldn't entirely agree with. Is Thucydides therefore writing a different sort of history from, from uh, things that have gone before? Is, is, is there something about the, the exercise that Thucydides is conducting that, that stands out in your mind? Yes, um, of course, he's he's right at the beginning of the idea of let's write a history in prose of events that happened, right? He really only has one big predecessor in ancient Greece, Herodotus, and he was supposedly distraught when he heard Herodotus's work. They seem to have kind of arrived at this idea independently, and Thucydides got there second and was upset about that. Um, so yes, he is doing something new. And he's also, I think a big part of what he's doing that I think could use more attention is he's kind of redefining what war means, right? We think of that question as simple as like, you declare war between states, and then there's an armistice at the end. And that's what a war is. His war begins before anybody declares war, and it includes a period of peace. Um, so I think we should consider this question of how he's defining war, which is an interesting one. So, so what does Thucydides say about normal levels of violence in, in his world? So, so we're sort of clearly talking about some of the things he's describing as aberrant, and mm -hmm. this wider project of which you know you're writing a chapter is about oddities of violence. So, what is Thucydides saying? Do you think about um, normal normal violence or or sort of acceptable violence? I think he is. It's implicit. He is assuming that you already know what ancient Greek standards of normal behavior are. So when he describes, for example, women throwing roof tiles down on enemy soldiers, you're supposed to know already that women aren't supposed to participate in war, that that's an aberration. Um, you're supposed to know that while it was acceptable, legally speaking, it's, you know, it's not, you can do it. It was cruel to take an island full of men, women, and children and kill the men and enslave the women and children. You were supposed to recognize cruelty. Of course, we all can. Um, and you were supposed to understand what basic ancient Greek norms of warfare were like. He does not talk at any kind of length about, he doesn't editorialize. He doesn't say, this is weird, you shouldn't do this. Um, he lets you draw that conclusion. That was great, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you very much. So one two-part question as we conclude this just fascinating uh, conversation that we've been having. One thing that surprises students, or at least students encountering Thucydides for the first time, is that he doesn't actually live to see the end of the war. And if he had lived to see the end of the war, would, would that have made... Uh, a difference? Does the end of the war, the Peloponnesian War, bear Thucydides out, or 
or not. And maybe you can tell us a bit, too, how the war does does end. Sure. So Thucydides, we don't really know what happened. Um, we can see that the work is unfinished. It breaks off um, in at the end of book eight. It's not it's not done. We can see that books eight and book five are probably less polished than the rest of the work. Um, so they have very few speeches and that kind of thing. Uh, so, but we don't know what happened. And one kind of intriguing theory that I've heard, again, it's just pure speculation, is maybe he just got so disgusted with the whole situation that he just quit. <laughs> More likely he died. Um, and but he he did know that Athens was defeated. So he he tells us about that even very early on in the work. Um he had he lived a little bit longer, I don't think he, it would have changed his perspective. I think he, maybe he would have focused a little bit more on the ways that that Sparta too got corrupted, um, as well as Athens. But of course, he was an Athenian, so he was maybe a little bit more interested in the Athenian side of things. Um, I think he was very disillusioned. I think he was embittered might be a little bit too strong but he had gone from seeing the state that he characterizes as extremely powerful you know Pericles this general that he casts as so important and heroic and wonderful at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War gives a funeral oration so an oration to praise the soldiers who had died in that year of the war and he gives this wonderful account of you know this this flourishing intellectual city where democracy is alive and debate is alive and everybody's open and we trust each other. And that that is followed immediately by the plague passage. So again, this is one of these juxtapositions and the plague kills Pericles. So one of these juxtapositions that shows here's what we started with and then here's how it fell apart. Um, I think you can envision his entire text as kind of doing that. You have, here's what we started with, the funeral oration. And then at the end, look at this disaster in Sicily, the mistakes that we made, the leadership we didn't have, the the hubris, the greed. This is a state that was not just defeated in war. It lost its character. It lost its leadership. Um, and I think he... I don't think that perspective would have changed had he lived a little bit longer to see the ways that Persia, having been unable to defeat the Greeks in the Persian Wars, at the end of the Peloponnesian War, it can just march in and take over. The Greeks did it to themselves. <laughs> um, I don't. So I think his perspective would have remained more or less the same. Wow. Well, you could see why he would have lost heart if at the at the end why if that did happen why he would have stopped writing it's uh it's a really yeah. poignant account that you uh that you're giving us so one one very quick question before we before we conclude if there was another line or phrase from Thucydides that you would want us to remember instead of or alongside of the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must what would it what would that be? 
That would be the line that I have already mentioned a little bit, that war as a violent teacher or teacher of violence levels the intellectual and emotional character of most people with their circumstances, because that's where I see a little bit of hope in Thucydides, that most people, that you know, you don't have to be part of this. You can you can be one of the people that is resistant to this effect of war. And I really do think that's kind of one that's one of the main things that his work is trying to do is to teach you how to be one of the people who's not leveled to your circumstances in war. So that's that's what I would point you to. I think it's 382 too. That's a, a beautiful and optimistic uh, point on which to on which to end. You can be a depressed person like Thucydides watching your society fall apart. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us. It's been a wonderful conversation, and we really appreciate you being here. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks so much, Rachel. Rachel Bozzoni will be here at the University of Calgary on June 9th and 10th, 2023, for our Oddities of Violence workshop, which has been made possible by funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. If you want to know more about Rachel's work on Thucydides and theorizing violence, drop by or live stream our workshop in June. Details will be on our Oddities of Violence website. You've been listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast. Our podcast is produced and edited by Alejandra Vivas. Thank you, Alejandra. And today, also with Camille. Join us for our next episode when we continue with our discussion of the oddities of violence in the ancient world, and we'll be looking at the margins of genocide through a particular dynamic that links two events that occurred centuries apart in the history of ancient Rome, its destruction of Carthage, and its persecution of Christians. Our guest then will be Tristan Taylor from the University of New England in Australia, and your host that episode will be Maureen Hebert. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.